Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Rick Langer, and I'm a professor here at Biola University in the Biblical Studies and Theology Department. I'm also the director of the Office of Faith and Learning and the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project, along with a good friend and colleague of mine, Tim Uhoff. Hi, Rick. Great to be with you again. Hey, Rick, we've heard this um, thing that has been in the background of a mass exodus of people from the church. It's kind of like we've heard this on so many different levels. Um, we've even had some colleagues here at Bible University that have written on this topic. So a brand new book has come out uh, by Jim Davis called Dechurching: Who's Leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? Yeah, the great the great dechurching. Yeah, I just saw that. Even I, more I, disturbing. Yeah, I yes, I missed um. it. It was written with Michael Graham, uh, Jim, and his wife Angela are co-speakers at Family Life Marriage Conferences. They've been on the team since 2015. Jim's a pastor in Orlando. Uh, he's obviously a sharp thinker, author. So we have been very concerned about this in Christian higher education, and we thought uh, when we saw this book come out that Jim has really done a good job with his co-author of uh, even initiating a study on this topic. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, uh, it, part of why we think about this relative to Winsome Conviction is that even in our own personal experience yeah. with people we have known, yep. we've seen people leaving the church, and one of the primary reasons that we're given, and this is our anecdotes now, not uh, Jim's statistics, we'll get to those in a minute, but one of the big reasons was just the animosity, the acrimony, the sense of divisiveness yeah. and polarization that they found within the church body, uh, not just to the outside world, but to fellow right. members of the congregation. So right. this seems to be, I, I don't know, we'll find out, but this we'll find is one out. of those things. That That's certainly be been our experience in the last three and a half years we've been doing the Winston Conviction Project, working with pastors and There's churches. There's a lot of that. It's just a There's felt a lot of existential that. experience. So Jim has roughly 20 minutes to identify this and fix it, Rick. <laughs> so we are very much looking forward. And if we have any time at the end, we'll do global warming. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. Um, first, thank you for the work that you've done in this area. Uh, it really is concerning to us uh, who teach at Christian universities. So first, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, it's our pleasure. And maybe we should just start uh, by focusing on the title of your book. Maybe take for a second and for our listeners to find de-churching. Yeah, we were very, very uh, particular with this term because it, it, for our study, we defined it as somebody who used to go to church at, at least on a monthly basis and now who goes less than once per year. And we use de-churching because we, as we thought and we found out, um, just because they're not going to church does not mean that they're not a Christian. So mm. de-churching seemed like the the best word, and we called it the great de-churching to play off the great awakenings because we are in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. Wow. And, and in that sense, you're saying the, de the, the kind of the demographic magnitude of the de-churching is comparable to the demographic magnitude of the, the first, second, third great awakenings? Larger. Larger. Mm. So if we go by numbers, okay, you're supposed adults, to give us good okay. news here. <laughs> there is one good more news. <laughs> there is, but you, sometimes you got to take a hard look in the mirror. Right. We Absolutely. Can get what's good. All right. Absolutely. Fine. So uh, quickly for our listeners, we do throw around this term deconversion, which dechurching, if I'm understanding you correctly, Jim, is different from this. And we actually uh, know some very public figures that have deconverted, which they would no yeah. longer self-identify as a Christian, de-churching is different. 
than that per se. Yeah, anecdotally, Orlando, according to a Barna study, is the was the sixth largest, um, sixth most dechurched population in the United States, and this, that's our context. So really, this was birthed out of our own context. But uh, we were very particular with the word de-churched because we knew the majority of people we interacted with who don't go to church used to. Some seemed to be Christian. Some didn't. Some were fine going to church on Christmas and Easter. Some never wanted to go back. So the problem with deconversion, or as we'll, we engage exvangelical, is it, it lacks a certain definition and can be very confusing when we try to apply that to 40 million adult Americans. Mm. So why don't you tell us just real quick about the study that you guys commissioned, and then um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you've already mentioned this, about what's happened in the last 25 years. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the study, and then tell us some of the salient uh, observations that came from that. Yeah, so the study, we commissioned doctors Ryan Burge and Paul Jupe, they are social scientists, to do what became the largest um, or most comprehensive study on de-churching in America. And they did it uh, with over 7,000 participants, over 600 data points. And what we wanted to do initially was prove or disprove this thesis. We are currently in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And in phase one, we proved it. And mm. so we, we learned by percentages. Uh, the previous largest shift was actually the 25 years post-Civil War. Uh, our shift is 25% greater going the opposite direction. And then if you want to go by numbers, um, of course, there's more people today, but by numbers, it is larger than the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Wow. Wow. So yeah. over the past 25 years, you know, we can, we can get to the why later, but I hear you asking the what. And so re we began to see this begin in earnest, the... You know, Ryan Burge wrote the, the book, The Nuns, and he notes that the, the percentage of people who identified with no religious affiliation or uh, nothing in particular, it, it, it grew by, you know, a percentage or point slowly and steadily through the 70s and 80s. But then uh, I think it grew by two points, if I remember correctly. But then in the 90s, it began to grow by like two points a year. And, uh, and so something happened in the 90s that really began this. And we began to see people de-churching from mainline and Roman Catholic churches first, people de-churching largely from the secular left. But if you fast forward now, the exodus is very much happening in evangelical churches. And it, uh, it's happening on the secular right, actually, at twice the pace of the secular left. Mm. Can we go to the nuns real quick? Because I've heard this mentioned all the time, um, that... People who now self-identify as nuns, no religious affiliation, most of them came from religious homes? Have you heard well, so that? that? I've not. Ryan Burge would be the expert on that. My right. hunch is that that would be the case. Okay. My hunch is. Uh, we were very particular in, in identifying our audience as people who did go to church regularly and don't now. But we didn't cross-reference the, the actual, um, all the nuns with that which I would imagine Ryan would have a really good answer. But looking at our study, I would definitely guess the vast majority of those increasingly identifying as nuns did come from a church background. Mm. Uh, you mentioned in your book five different types of those that are de-churching. Can you quickly describe each one? I thought this was really interesting to break them down into slightly different categories. 
Yeah, this was really interesting to me because this isn't uh, two pastors putting their finger in the air or just kind of combing the data themselves. We we used uh, machine learning AI algorithms to identify common answers to be able, because we knew we weren't looking at one monolithic group. There, there definitely were different camps within this 40 million people. And so the AI was able to identify these categories and some of them made a lot of sense some of them were surprising but in very very quick terms hey jim um, jim we don't yes. use ai you're talking to two professors <laughs> brother we do not bring ai into this podcast okay okay we're, gonna, we're gonna edit that this. out right now a careful <laughs> strategy <laughs> that was deployed for this purpose because we're probably we going to get re- <laughs> go ahead <laughs> we use the most reliable methods of the day <laughs> Good, Excellent. better. That's I what felt we like to hear. Feeling better now? Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> so in, in very broad strokes, 5 million of the 40 million were, uh, n- were did not come from Christian faiths as we we surveyed all faiths in America. 20 million uh, were Roman Catholic and mainline de-church. And we grouped them together because they look almost identical in, in, in what they believe, why they left. The only difference is, as you would expect, Roman Catholic de-church people were more influenced by uh, scandal in the church. Then, we, so we had three consecutive studies. Phase three, we just looked at evangelicals. And four groups became very clear. Uh, about 15 million of the 40 million are evangelical, have de-churched from evangelical churches. Um, the largest group is what we call cultural Christians. They, it's about 8 million people. They retain a positive feeling toward the church. They might, uh, they might go on Christmas or Easter, but their orthodoxy scores were crazy low. Only 1% of them believe that Jesus is the son of God. So the cultural Christian is largely the person who, they don't have any pain point, but they probably were never a Christian to begin with. Uh, then you have the mainstream de-church evangelical, which looks just very similar to the cultural Christian, largely white group, de-churched more recently with one major difference. <laughs> 98% of them would say Jesus is the son of God. 100% of this group, which is about 2.5 million people, said they're willing to return to an evangelical church. So this is probably the lowest hanging fruit. No major pain point. Uh, then you have the ex-evangelicals which is one of those confusing terms, but the way we use it, they de-church from an evangelical church with a very specific pain point, and they are done with evangelicalism. Uh, they have, they still retain um, a, a relatively high orthodoxy score. We, it seems like most of these people are still Christians and even willing to come back to something other than an evangelical church, but they have a, a real pain point. And then lastly was this group BIPOC, uh, de-church from evangelical churches, two, again, 2.5 million people. And what's interesting is we did not allow uh, our our good methods of the day to <laughs> see race. Race was not something that the algorithm saw. And and this group is 0% white. And, uh, and it's a fascinating group. It's the most educated group, the highest income by far. Uh, but again, low, ortho, low orthodoxy scores. So many of them probably weren't Christians to begin with, and most of these people de-churched uh, over 10 years ago. So this is, I, I mean, it's interesting as I, I don't, I didn't write down all the details, but it seems like almost two-thirds of this group of um, de-churched evangelicals were people who were probably, ha- had low orthodoxy to begin with, were, were yeah. Pro- we're pro- of the 15 million. We're probably looking at five, uh, 
probably five about five million true Christians, and, and the other ten probably aren't. Yeah. Okay. That which is still a lot, just as interesting to to think about as you as you look at these numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, do you think so? With this going on in the background, and whenever I speak in churches and mention some of the facts that you just discussed, they are shocked. It's like Casablanca. I am shocked to find gambling in this, you know, in this institution. <laughs> but they are—they have not heard any of this. They've not heard the term "dechurched," "deconversion," and it blow—it blows them away. So, is your experience that the church is kind of unaware that this is happening? This this massive dechurching shift, uh, and if so, why? Why is the church unaware that this is happening? You know, it is interesting. I, I think there are certain church leaders, and I would put y'all in that ca this category, that you can see that it's happening. We can see something big is happening, but we don't know what it is. Um, and so our goal in this project was to start a conversation. We're not, you know, we, this one book doesn't fix the problem, but we want to start a conversation and have people with different skill sets and experiences and giftings to be able to build on this. Kind of like when my kids were little and I had a Lego table. You know, we want to build on that Lego mm. table. But studies like this are expensive. The reason books like this don't get written is because our study cost $100,000. Well, we're never going to make our money back on that. So it was a collaboration of churches coming together to fund this study so that we could we could do this because it's just not financially viable if you're just looking at the numbers. So I, I do think um, your average church leader, most of the church leaders I see are like, you know what, that makes sense. I'm so glad to have data behind it. But your average church person is pretty shocked that things are changing, changing this fast and changing in the ways that they're changing. One one thing I was curious about, I um, saw. What, well, what, just talk to us a little bit about the role of higher education in people dechurching or not dechurching. So this was fascinating. Um, we I, absolutely, the more educated an evangelical is, the more likely they are to remain in church. Only three percent of evangelicals with master's degrees uh, had dechurched. So that kind of goes after the 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 standard boogeyman line of higher education, specifically higher secular education, taking our children away from us. Um, there's something going on there. And the inverse is true, too. Dechurching is largely a lower income, lower education uh, phenomenon. That also goes after the boogeyman of like, well, we, you know, once you learn and you get to a point in your education, you don't need that religious stuff anymore. That, that's just yeah. not what we're saying. Well, that, and that was what I, I had seen some of those uh, statistics in there, and, and, and I, I found that quite striking in terms of how much it pushes back against our stereotypes of, you know, you get educated, you get rich, and you abandon your God. Um, and in this cultural context and moment, whatever that, you know, the long-term historic truth of that may or may not be, um, I was really struck by, I mean, that's just way different than I would have expected. It was way it, different than all of us expected. By the way, Jim, you just became an advertisement for Biola University. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll send you royalties. But, but to, to, to clarify that it didn't matter if these master's degrees were from a Christian university or a secular, the point is yeah. higher no. education made right. people's faith, their church commitment more, well, they correlate. We don't know the causation, but it correlates. Well, and I, I would obviously say I have a very high 
value for Christian education at every level. Um, I've, between my wife, me, and my kids, we are very invested financially <laughs> in Christian education. But I, what I do want to say is education, wherever it's happening, is not the problem. Right. Boy, Jim, this is so good uh, for what we're trying to do because at a certain level, we get pushback. And the pushback is this. You have a person on your podcast, you are exposing people to an alternative perspective and better not to give them the platform, better not to give them the microphone because um, one dad said to me, how will you sleep at night uh, by exposing your students to like the work of Nietzsche or having them read the Quran or something like that and they walk away from the faith. So their fear is you expose them to divergent views, these students are so brittle, they, they will crack and what this is suggesting, uh, and you're throwing your hat into the ring, no, we need to do more of that to help them think and process and get that intellectual toolkit ready to go as they look at different perspectives. Oh, I absolutely agree. The pro, I mean, I don't know, you know, the, the person you're talking about, but I, I understand the type of person. And, you know, that we, as Christians, we aren't meant to live in fear of the sin outside the walls, always worried about if it's going to take our children away, although there's a at some level there's a place for that. What we want to do is build them up to send them out into the world. My kids go to Christian classical school and read Greek mythology, and, and, and we're able to pick it apart and look at, you know, what is there to learn? Where do we disagree? Why? And ultimately, I think that kind of educational engagement builds up believers. How, how can that happen at the church level? Like, like people who don't go to uh, even, let's say, a university or pursue a higher degree, a graduate degree. What, what kind of ways could we institute this in the church to promote perspective taking? And I'm thinking of pastors right now who have said, hey, I tried to do this and it absolutely backfired. Like I invited a person who is pro-choice. Um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of a person who brought in, in an imam and a Buddhist monk, and it took him years to recover. His church kind of rebelled against it. What, As a pastor, now put on your pastor hat, yeah. how do we bring this into the church? That's a really good question. I mean, I think a, a large part of it is knowing your people and where they are in their discipleship journey. Um, because there are certain conversations that five years ago, I, I, it was wiser to have in small groups than it was from a stage. Mm. Uh, and that's different in our church at this point. Um, it, actually, our podcast that we have with the Gospel Coalition started as just a local church podcast because I knew I, I wanted our people to engage with other people, leaders in Orlando who were doing good ministry, but I knew I could never bring them in at that point in time. Mm, so mm. we created a podcast. So it is an opt-in thing. It's not forced upon them. I'm not quote unquote bringing it into the church. Uh, so I think a lot of it is wisdom and knowing the the season and the maturity of the church that you're pastoring now. Well, that's good. And, that's really... and by the way, thanks for the invitation you gave us for your podcast. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. We're... We're so bigger we'll make than that, that happen Jim. someday. We're bigger than that, Jim. Um, <laughs> so let, let me ask the, the why question. You know, we, we've talked a little bit about kind of the demographic, the shift, and the, the fact that the church and, and some of who these people are. What are the things you found about why? Obviously, it wasn't education, but what was it? What are the things that kind of pushed people out? 
so this is what has been um, so interesting, and and I think because of the data and the findings has garnered attention politically from the New York Times on one side to the Ben Shapiro show on the other, because we we hear we think of the average de church person as someone who is left angry, uh, hurt, they don't have faith anymore. And while certainly those people are there and we don't want to minimize their pain, um, the number one reason for de-churching in America is I moved. Oh, 30 million of right. the 40 million people left without any kind of pain point. So, you know, wow. as to why we divide these two groups up into the casually de-churched versus the church casualties, that's a very high level. They break up even more. But just beginning to understand, oh, there are two very different types of people leaving. Um, and then we really, as to why this all started, the 1990s were a real inflection point. And, and you know, using very broad strokes, there are four things in particular that contributed. The first was the fall of the Soviet Union, which people don't realize how important that was to increasing de-churching, because before the fall of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, to be American was synonymous to be Christian. I think all of us here uh, are old enough to remember a time where if somebody said, I'm no longer a Christian, it wouldn't have been crazy for somebody to say, well, are you a communist? Mm. <laughs> you know, so, mm -hmm. and, and it was under the Eisenhower administration that we got under God yeah. uh, in, in, our, in our pledge and uh, in God we trust on our money. And so, so once the Soviet Union fell, there was a space to be what you actually were. And again, the early de-churchers probably weren't Christians. Uh, so there was a freedom. Then you combine that with the rise of the Internet. 1994, there are uh, Internet cafes by 97, even though it wasn't in many homes, it was in libraries and schools. And there was a safe place to pursue uh, a socially safe place, you know, a comfortable place to pursue other worldviews. Uh, then you you do have the the rise of the religious right. Um, and I'm probably not going to say names, but we know what we're talking about. And there were a number of people who probably weren't Christians. And they said, hey, if that's what Christianity is, I want no part of it. And then I think it's intriguing that you, you know, just after the close of the decade, you have 9-11. And in just 10 years, our enemies go from being godless communists to being religious fundamentalists. And so there are people saying, see, that's what religious fundamentalism does. And I want no part of it. Mm -hmm. So that's that began it. Again, largely on the secular left, largely mainline Roman Catholic, largely people who probably weren't believers to begin with, but that's what opened this box. And that's what's so good about your book is, you know, some we've gotten to this reading habit of like, I don't need to know that background information. Just get me to the application points that I can do for a church or a Christian organization. Yeah. But to know what historians call hinge moments that these yes. moments really did get us to the present moment. We, we do a lot of Foucault in my graduate program was, you mm. know, the archeology span of knowledge. I love that, that his term is that that knowledge has different layers of how we got to the present moment. So for us, and I hope this isn't too geeky for us as, you know, academics, that's in really important to know how we got to this cultural moment of how majority of people can't articulate necessarily why they think what they think but these all these things were playing little shifts in their thinking and gave them the freedom to adopt a perspective so thanks so much for doing that hard work to bring us in one one further question on this just with the the moving what did covid had an analogous impact to moving so to speak where people were kind of forcibly removed, so to speak, from 
church, kind of. Well, it, it so it de- depends on the state. Your experience and my experience are oh, going to right. be very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we stopped meeting for two and a half, three months, and that was not most Californians. Yeah, nope. yeah, yeah. S- situation, but there's no question. COVID radically increased the uh, the casually dechurched, specifically right. in the mainstream dechurched evangelical. Yeah, boy, that's really that's really good. And God bless pastors, Jim. Uh, what has happened to them in the last couple years has just been uh, amazing, and we need to just have a hug your pastor day for sticking in there. You know, based on that Christianity Today survey that said roughly what was it, forty three percent of U.S. pastors said I I would leave today if I could swing it financially. Uh, we just I had my moment. Yeah, I bet you <laughs> yeah. did. I bet you did, man. Uh, hey, I'm thankful that I'm still here, but I had my moment. Well, you know what? We're thankful you're still here. And again, we would encourage listeners to check out your book with Michael Graham, The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? Uh, please m- make sure to uh, check that out and do a deep dive. We're just giving you an introduction. Um, we would like to invite you back sometime in the future, Jim, to talk specifically about dechurching as it relates to the Winsome Conviction Project, because we have some anecdotal evidence that maybe the way we're treating each other as Christians and talking to those outside the Christian community is having an impact. But we'd like to talk to you about even the role of the internet with with making dechurching so public for people to see. So, sometime in the future, would you come back and join us, Jim? Oh, I'd love to. I mean, I think our data definitely speaks to that. And I don't know if you're familiar with the six-way fracturing of evangelicalism, but that was written by Michael Graham, my co-author, and our then youth director, Skylar Flowers. And so there's a lot of intersecting projects here that would be really fun to talk about. That's great. Well, we'll we'll make sure to have you back, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for the Winsome Conviction podcast. Uh, we'd love to have you subscribe at your favorite source, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out at the winsomeconviction.com website. And uh, we really appreciate your, uh, your listening and your support. Thanks so much for joining us.